Good morning, good to see you all, and good to be with you in worship. Um, before we turn to God's Word, I just want to um, just address one little thing here. Um, I want to encourage you. Uh, we, as human beings, fall into patterns. Um, sometimes our patterns are healthy, um, routines, and um, sometimes they're not so. And I want to encourage us as a congregation just to, to quickly address something I've noticed since we've returned indoors. Um, I want to encourage you to think of how we come and approach on Sunday morning. Um, I know life happens, it's difficult, but I really want to encourage us as much as we're able to try to be in the presence here of one another and before the Lord um, for our call to worship. It seems like in, since we've returned inside, we've become a little uh, less um, uh, uh, on it, if I will, for lack of a better uh, word. I want you to understand your presence here, when you're here, whether it's inside or outside, um, it's an encouragement to your brothers and sisters. And when we begin worship and we're not here, quite frankly, it's a discouragement. So I want to encourage you, um, as you think about Sunday mornings, um, think about how you can be in the presence of God people for uh, the call to worship, as much as, as much as you're able. And even to address those of you who are online as we've moved um, back into indoor worship and we still have outdoor worship available, I know we've gone through a season where it's easy to get into patterns and habits. And I want to encourage you as well, um, it, it, your life situation or just the need for extra care and isolation Absolutely, we want to. That's why we have a live stream. But if it's simply just because it becomes comfortable for us, because it's the easy thing to do, the convenient thing to do, again, I want to just encourage you to think that through. Um, we would love to have you with us in worship, uh, whether inside or outside. So uh, I have felt the need to, to bring that. I do. Um, we don't like to talk like this too much on a, on a Sunday morning, but I think it is something that needs to be um, just addressed um, together as, as a body as we seek to move forward together. Uh, but we're here now to, to look at God's Word that has just been read for us. And um, we recently began a, a series in the book of, of Genesis. And this morning we finally uh, come to uh, the opening chapter uh, at what we called Before the Beginning. Uh, that is, we looked at who God is in Himself, in His being, out of whom all creation flows. And then last week, we, we looked at the two uh, great competing stories concerning origins, asking the question, how did we get here? And we basically contrasted the atheistic, materialistic answer to that uh, question over against the biblical answer. And, uh, you know, are we here? And all, everything that is around us simply as a, as a result of, of dumb luck, by chance, or are we here as a result of the purposeful design and handiwork of a creator God? And if you believe the, the latter, and if you are convinced and persuaded of it, then everything that you've just heard read will make sense to you. Because the point of this chapter is very simply that God created everything. God created everything. That is the main point. You've already got the main point of Genesis 1, if you understand that. God created everything. He made light and sea and sky and plants and land and sun and moon and stars and fish and birds and animals and people. He made absolutely everything. 
So the disagreements that you are probably uh, are aware of that people have about this chapter and what it means and how to apply it are not about whether God created the heavens and the earth. They're not about whether or not God made everything. They're, they're simply about how long he took to do it and how he did it. Every Christian is, by definition, a creationist, right? This is not up for debate. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's the very first line in the creed. Whatever you believe about how God did it and how long he took to do it, every Christian must be a creationist. Every Christian must believe that God made absolutely everything. So what people are debating is not, did God make it or not? What people are debating is, how long did God take to do it? Did it take 6,000 years or 4.5 billion years? Which, as you know, are, are quite different. But that's the b- debate people have. They're not debating whether or not God made it all, and, and not whether God, or, or not God still sustains it all today. They're just debating how long it took. And and so bear in mind that that isn't the main point of this passage anyway. It's not about how long it it took and how long it was done. The main point of this passage is God created everything. But when we look at Genesis 1, we have a couple of questions that we have to ask, and and one immediately. And this is a question that we have to ask before we study any passage of Scripture. And, And that question is this, what genre of writing are we dealing with? Uh, what, what type of, of literature is this? Now, often it's, it's very obvious, but at, at any time you seek to understand anything in the Bible, this has to be the first question. I mean, have you ever, have you ever played charades? What's the first thing that you do, right? Like, well, the, even before you say how many words it is, you say, oh, it's a, it's a book, or it's a song, or it's a film, or a play, or, or whatever it is. And you try to establish the type of thing that you're about to talk about. If you don't, you realize that people will be guessing, you know, totally wildly because they're expecting it to be a song when it's actually a film, right? So you know, you know what I'm talking about. You're, 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 you're establishing the type of thing under consideration. You're establishing the genre. And when we read the Bible, we do the same thing. In fact, you and I do it all the time and we don't even notice. So we're, we're reading something and we understand that there's a scale, basically. So, so on, this, on this end of the scale is an absolutely chronological, literal, factual recounting of history. So, for example, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's not a metaphor. That's not a picture. It's a factual statement about something that happened in the real world at a certain time. And it's meant to be taken entirely historical and totally literally. That's at one end of the scale, Luke chapter 24. At the other end of the scale, you have a totally different type 
of writing. The other end would be poetic and imagery-filled. And so uh, that, that might be, for instance, Song of Songs, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, which says, Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Now, you and I read that, and we know immediately that isn't a literal description. We're, we're aware that it isn't literal, but it's using poetic, expressive, metaphorical imagery to describe something that's actually indescribable. If, if you took the Song of, of Songs literally, the woman described would look something uh, like this. Because someone has done it and put it up on Google. And basically what they've done is, is they've given her a tower for a neck and, and fawns for breasts and goats for hair and a, a massive chunky great nose and doves for eyes. If you take the Hebrew in Song of Songs 4 literally, that's what she looks like. No one in the world is going to sing a love song to a woman that looks like that. So we've got a scale. And you and I see that scale all the time. We're continually reading the scriptures going, well, what genre is this then? And that doesn't mean that Song of Songs isn't true, by the way. That doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that it's not the word of God inspired, authoritative, and without flaw. All it means is the, the way the writing's intended to be taken isn't literal. In fact, it's, it, if, if you read it literally, you destroy it. Whereas over here, Luke 24, it's meant to be completely literal. And lots of biblical writers jump from one to the other without telling you. So Moses, for example, you, you read through Moses' writing and you find that he goes from song into prose and back to song again without necessarily always telling you that, that that's what he's doing. And the translators of your English Bible will try and show you uh, where that is by breaking out it, it out into different structure on the, on the page. So, so just be aware of that's what's happening when you read your Bible. Now, that, that we've got to ask the question, what type of genre of writing is this? So what about Genesis 1? What do we do with Genesis 1? Where is it on this scale? Well, it's not a poem in the, in, the sa- in the same sense that, uh, that the Song of Songs is. And the reason I say that is because in Hebrew poetry, basically, you rhyme meanings, which means that you say one phrase, and then you say it again with different words to help people understand that it's poetry. It's structured in, in rhyming pairs. And Genesis 1 isn't like that, right? It doesn't, it doesn't do that. So it's not way over here on the poem end. But I think in a number of ways, it's actually more like a poem and a a song than it is like Luke 24. Because it's obviously not like Luke 24 either. It's just not structured in the same way. And so I'm going to give you uh, this morning a few clues that have helped me to come to the conclusion that actually uh, Genesis 1 is at this end of the scale, even though it's it's not strictly a poem. It's It's a sort of song of creation. And you'll see why that's relevant in a moment. And the first clue is that the book of Genesis, when you read through it carefully, is built around the repeated phrase, these are the generations of something. And and they are like section headings that appear 10 times in the book of Genesis. Chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, followed by a description of how the heavens and the earth came to be. 
These are, the, you know, these are the generations of Adam, followed by a description of Adam and his children. These are the generations of Noah, chapter 6, verse 9. Follow again. These are the generations of Shem, Ham, Jepheth, of Terah, of, of Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. And it, and it structures the whole book into sections, if you like. These are the generations of. But this bit here in Genesis 1 is the only section of the book, that we, the one that we just heard read, is the only section of the book that doesn't get preceded with that phrase. It begins instead in the beginning, and it's almost like an overture before the generational histories of the book start. And, and that's a clue for me that, that, that we're not dealing with a kind of chronological narrative necessarily. It's a different type of writing. The chronological history begins at chapter 2, verse 4, and it goes, okay, this is how it happened. But at this point, it hasn't started yet. So that's clue number one. Clue number two for me that this is more over at the song, um, and it's like a creation song, is that how do you have day and night without a sun and a moon? I mean, it's an obvious question. You, you heard at the beginning of the reading, and there was evening and there was morning. God made day and, and night. But then it's not until later on day four that the sun and the moon are told to tell you when the day and night are. So, so the question a lot of people would ask is, well, how do you have a day and a night without a sun and a moon? It doesn't sound as if it's a literal order of events chronologically. It sounds like it's being a little bit more expressive than that, to, to connote that, that the idea that God created everything. And so we're perhaps a little bit unclear. Is this chronological history or not? And it doesn't sound like it necessarily is. Now, some people will, will you know, push back at this and say, well, well that's only something you'd say if, you, if you've read modern geology and Charles Darwin, because if you didn't, you, 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 you would take it literally. But actually, that isn't quite, quite the case, because in 200 AD, we have this quote from Oregon, who, who, who was uh, one of the brightest minds of the early church. He, he said this in 200 AD, some 1,500 years before modern geology. He said, what person of intelligence, I ask, will consider as a reasonable statement that the first and second and third day in which there are said to be morning and evening existed without sun and moon and stars. I don't think anyone will doubt that these are figurative expressions which indicate certain mysteries through a semblance of history. What Origen's saying, and, 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 and by the way, there's actually plenty of intelligent people who don't agree, so he is overstating a bit. But Origen is saying, I don't think this is a literal chronological history. I think this is using figurative language because otherwise, how does God create the sun and moon to mark the day and night after he's created the day and night? I think he's using poetic imagery, figurative expressions to indicate mysteries that otherwise cannot be expressed. In other words, it's kind of song-like. It's kind of poetic and meant to move you as, as much as it is to tell you exactly what happened. That's clue number two. The third clue is that Genesis 1 describes the same events as Genesis 2. Uh, you read through Genesis 1, it describes how God created everything. And then you turn the page to Genesis chapter 2, and you read it again from a totally different point of view. Because the writer moves, if you like, from a wide-angle lens, which we've just heard read out, down to a very narrow lens focused on two individuals. 
And you know how filmmakers do that. Like at the beginning, surely you've seen Forrest Gump, and it starts out sort of sweeping across the sky, and then it zooms in on this one man sitting on the bench. It's quite a common device in movies. It happens a lot. And I think the writer of Genesis is doing that too. He says, I'm going to describe the big picture of God making everything. And he sweeps through the landscape, massive wide-angle vision, and then he comes to the in to these two people in this garden where he's going to suddenly start naming the names of the rivers, the geography. He's going to identify where it is. It's very specific and historical, whereas in chapter 1, it's just a, a sweeping wide-angle lens. And I think that's another clue that we're dealing with more of a song-like poetic text here. And the Bible often does this. So Judges chapter 4, for instance, is the account of of a battle where, where Deborah um, ultimately leads the people of God to victory. It's very historical and chronological. But Judges chapter 5 describes the same battle in terms of a poetic song. And it's a celebration of the great victory that God's people have won. And so they're, they're different in type. One is history, one is song or poetry. And as a result, when you read Judges 5, that the stars in heaven came down and fought the enemies of God's people, you're not thinking, they, they can't have done. There's no cosmic axe-wielding entities in, in, in Judges chapter 4. We say, no, we understand that this is a poetic description of what has happened. See, the two correspond. They overlap and they shed light on on, on, on one another. Exodus chapter 14, same thing, describes the Exodus in historical fashion. It says, this happened here and here and here and here. But Exodus chapter 15 is a song of celebration of God's rescue. And we see this pattern happening again and again and again throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. So I personally would see that as a third clue to indicate that God is actually saying this is like a sweeping song to give you the heart of that God created everything rather than a chronological list. It's a wide-angle lens. And the fourth clue is that this song has got refrains, rhythm, choruses. There are these, ex, these repeated refrains, the evening, the morning, the first day, and God saw that it was good, and God said and it was so. In other words, it's just structured very much like, like a song with a chorus coming in again and again and again to remind us that God created everything. And, and, and you may or may not agree with me about that interpretation, and that's fine. This isn't, listen, this isn't the official view of Redeemer Presbyterian Church or anything like that. But as I read the passage, those four clues lead me to conclude that this is actually like a song, and it's not necessarily a chronological list of things that happened. And I think it uses the six-day structure as like a stanza structure of the whole overture to communicate God made everything. I think it's like Judges chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 15 and other texts that use song to communicate something that's really indescribable, a song that says, look how sweeping this is. God did it all. And, 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 it, and, it just, and it just shows that God created everything. Light, sky, sea, plants, animals, fish, birds, animals, humans. And please understand, this isn't just me you know, going off on some flight of fancy. There are many faithful Christians who would take this view that this is a, a literary device to communicate that God created everything. 
And it's not necessarily a chronological list. But listen, you don't have to agree. I'm not making the statement, this is what we believe here. Uh, come on, you know, like it or lump it. No, not at all. But because of these factors, I personally am not convinced that the text is trying to tell me how old the earth is or how God did it. I don't think the text is saying the earth is thousands of years old or billions of years old or that when God did it, it, it all appeared instantaneously or it was created over a very long extended period of time. I just don't think the text is, was telling me those types of things. I think the text, it, it's a text that's about who and why and not about how and when. It's about who and why and not about how and when. For the how and when, we need to study God's world as well as, as, as God's word. So, we, so we've got two books that God's given us, the word of God and, and the world of God. It's hard to find an atlas anymore. Everybody Googles it, but uh, this, is a, this is an atlas of some sort. But we have the, the, the word of God and we have the world of God. And we read them both to understand what it is that, that God's put around us. The, the word of God is primary. The word of God is in authority over me. But when the word of God doesn't tell me something, I'm allowed, I think I'm allowed to look at the world of God and work out how it works, which is how we ended up with such things like penicillin and how most of us are, are healthier than we would have been a century ago. Because we, because we looked at God's word, it doesn't ha- tell us how to make penicillin and other things, but God's world does, and so we study them both. In other words, science and scripture are complementary in that sense. They, they answer different types of questions. Scripture is about who and why at this point in the story, and science is about how and when. I've used this illustration before to illustrate this point. Most of you, I'm sure, have, have been to a wedding ceremony, and if you have, you know that the culminating event of the ceremony is, is when uh, the declaration of marriage is made and the newly married bride and groom kiss, right? And now, there are two ways that you can describe what happens in that moment. The, the who and why answer, the Genesis 1-like answer would be, we are watching two people who just got married, we're seeing them declare their undying love for one another. It's beautiful. It's so moving. That's the who and why answer. The how and when answer, the scientist answer is, well, for 3.7 seconds, we saw the approach of two pairs of lips with the reciprocal transmission of microbes and carbon dioxide, right? That's, that's the how and when answer. That tells me how long it took and exactly what happened. Are both of those answers true? Of course they are. Does explaining one of them scientifically negate the the explanation at the personal level? Of course not. And I think Genesis 1 is primarily this who and why rather than the how and when. Now, some of you might say, well, okay, I can see that, that that's mainly what it is, but I'm not yet convinced that it's not about how and when as well. Uh, surely it's not just this kind of, of personal level. Isn't there also a, a, an explanation at a scientific level? Why would God use a six-day structure if it could have taken billions of years? Why, why say that? Well, I think the six-day structure, if we look at what the text, it's, it's actually very interesting because what God is, does is he, he makes universe, 
sky and sea, and then the land, and then fills the universe on day four, sun, moon, and stars, and then the, sea, uh, the sky and sea on day five with fish and birds, and then the land with animals and, uh, and humans on day, on day six. So he makes universe, he makes the universe sky, sea, land, and then fills the universe, the sky and sea, and, and then the land. And at the end of all of that, it climaxes in the amazing revelation, God made man in his image. And that was very good. So that six-day structure, that's what's going on. It's making three and then filling three. So why, why does God, for instance, start creation with light? And incidentally, that's something that science also affirms. If you ask a scientist or an interpreter of Scripture the question, how did the universe begin, they would both say with a blinding flash of light. One of them would say it's called the Big Bang. The other would say, this is God saying, let there be light. Both say that the universe began with a blinding flash of light. But actually, God does it uh, not just to, to, because he wants to get everything uh, started, but because he's showing us, I am speaking by the power of my word, light, where there has been darkness. And you read the New Testament, and, 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 and you find John's gospel begins, in the beginning was the word, and in him was life, and his life was the light of man. The, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that's exactly what happened at the very beginning of all things. The gospel and creation start with God by the power of his word alone, speaking light into terrible darkness. That's a wonderful image of what Jesus is later going to do as he brings light with him into a dark world. You say, all right, light, fine, but what about the sun, moon, stars created on day four? Actually, the sun and the moon and the stars are the three things that many people around them worshipped. So in 1500 BC, when Moses was writing this, loads of, of nations are, are, around are, are bowing down saying, oh, we worship the sun, oh, we worship the moon, oh, we worship the stars. And, and, and they're calling out to their gods, to which Moses basically writes, listen, your gods are created by my God. And actually, they're created after a whole bunch of other stuff. My God actually made your gods. They're, they're not gods. You're just worshiping created things that my God made. And actually, they're not even the most important things in the whole story because they're created on day four. And the same thing is true of the sea creatures on day five. Many pagan nations around this time thought that sea creatures were kind of rivaling with the gods to create and control the chaos of the earth. And Moses says, no, 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 these guys come very late in the story, day five. Moses says, God created them. He created them by the power of his word alone. Don't worship them. Don't worship the sun. Don't worship sea creatures. Worship the God who created them. And crucially, God creates in the six-day structure because he wants to set a pattern for us. Six of work, one of rest. And that's a theme that Mike's going to pick up on next week as well. So you might say, okay, I can see the structure does something other than simply list what happened. But So why did Moses write such a simple passage? Okay, so maybe it isn't a literal list, but couldn't Moses have at least told us what did happen with all of the detail that we want as modern scientific people? If science is right, and it all did take billions of years, why didn't God just tell us so? 
Well, do you know that there are only 76 words in Hebrew in this chapter, and every one of them can be translated into every language we know? Just think about that for a moment. And I want you to imagine that you're going to reach um, a, a tribe in the Amazon jungle. You're a missionary, and you're going and you're going to try to reach Amazonian Indians with the gospel. And they say, "Okay, tell me where the story starts." And you show them a story that talks about Cambrian explosions, this and billions of years here, and quasars emerging at this point and of the, in the story, and Planck time, ten to the minus forty-seven seconds, and you. You've just lost every single person there. In fact, you've lost everybody except (coughs) Western people in the last 250 years. Listen, it's just not the story, is it? It just isn't relevant from almost everybody who's ever lived. I mean, we happen now to be interested in these things, which is fine, which is good. It's it's why we've discovered medicines and and things that have resulted been the result of scientific investigation. But for most people in history, that's not been a relevant issue at all. And so God inspired a text that, if you like, sings out the beauty of God's creation of everything rather than a scientific explanation of how he did it and what happened when. Another illustration that I've used before um, related to this is, <coughs> um, I don't know if any of you, um, has anyone here uh, read uh, Diana, Her True Story uh, by Andrew um, Morton? I don't know if anyone has. Maybe one or two, if we're, if we're lucky. But how many of you have, have heard Elton John's song, Candle in the Wind, right? I can guarantee a lot more have. And why have more people heard Candle in the Wind than, than have read Diana? her true story, because few people were very, were very interested in all the meticulous details of Diana's life. But many people wanted to get the big sweeping view of what her life was about and wanted to, to make sense of it when she died. Not all people ran out and bought, bought a book. In fact, very few people read the book to go through all the detail, but the song captivated people, captivated hearts and moved people. It used a different medium to tell the story. You see, the stories are complementary. They don't contradict one another, but one of them expresses it much more poetically than the other one. And so, I think Genesis 1 is the candle in the wind. And I think your science textbook might well be (coughs) Diana, her true story. And the two can be complementary. Science and scripture can complement one another. I think that's why God wrote it in such a simple way. And by the way, I also think there's something beautifully sovereign about the throwaway manner in which God says these things. See, if you have a science textbook saying this happened here in this way and so on, and it went on for page after page full of scientific detail of what God did when, I think you'd lose some of the power of God created the heavens. And God said, let the earth bring forth plants. And there it was. Because there is something beautifully sovereign about the way in which God says it and creation responds. Of course it does. If God says, let there be light, of course there's going to be light. Who can possibly resist God? And anyone who knows me well knows that the phrase for me that drives this point home more than any other is the phrase in Genesis 1.16, and also stars. 
If, if God explained how all the stars formed, he'd be writing books and books and books about it, and you and I would be confused, and so would, and so would the Amazonian tribesmen. But you read the phrase, and also stars, and something of dramatic power gets communicated. I mean, look at this. <coughs> uh, this is um, the Earth um, uh, relative to the eight other planets in our solar system. Or is it now seven? Pluto got fired for some reason I don't f- quite fully understand. Um, but Earth um, is the biggest of the five uh, on the bottom row. Uh, but Earth is, is re- relative to Jupiter is very small. So Earth is kind of the one, the pea size. Pluto's like the small dot, and Jupiter is huge. God just made all these planets in one go. But next slide, Jupiter itself is, is even though it's, it's 987 times bigger than Earth, it's a lot smaller than the sun. Sun, in this picture, is massive. Jupiter is now the size of the P. The Earth is the size of a small dot now. And the sun is just an average star. And we look at it and we think, wow, God just made the sun and the moon, day four. God, God didn't need them until then. Ah, off you go now. But the sun itself isn't a very big star, as we'll see in the next slide. Uh, in this one, uh, Arcturus is, is massive. The sun is the size of the pea. Jupiter is one pixel, and Earth is invisible on this scale. And God just says, also stars, only two Hebrew words, et stellus, and stars. You think there's 100 billion stars in this galaxy, and there's 100 billion, billion galaxies, and God just said, also stars. <coughs> but Arcturus itself isn't even that big of a star. If you look at this scale, the sun is one pixel, Jupiter is invisible, Arcturus is the pea-sized one in the middle at the bottom, and Antares, which is only the 15th brightest star in our sky, is just sitting up there going, look how big the God who made this was. And how sovereign do you have to be to just drop in also stars? So I think there's something about the sovereignty of God in a passage like this that expresses in such simple terms the way that God made everything. Now again, you may well not agree with me about this interpretation of Genesis. That's fine. It's not the official Redeemer interpretation or anything like that. Uh, Lots of people don't. But what I'm trying to show you is the how and when isn't really the issue of this chapter. The chapter is simply saying God created everything. And by the way, I don't think the Bible is saying that the earth is billions of years old or that it's a few thousand years old. I just don't think that's what the text is telling me. I think it's a song, an overture, a creation song that tells me God made it all. Let's enjoy him and celebrate him for it. And for the question about how and when, we have to, we have to read the, the book of God's world as well as the book of, of God's word to understand. So if you were to say to me, science has sunk scripture, as many people uh, believe today, I would respond like this. I would say, first of all, I wouldn't want to get into a debate about how old the earth is, because personally I'm not an expert and I don't believe the word of God really talks about that. But I'd want to start instead by saying the central claim of the scriptures 
end of Genesis chapter 1 on issue is that God created everything. And that is a position that many honest top scientists believe. This is a quote uh, from the famous Harvard atheist scientist Stephen Jay Gould. He said, either half of my colleagues are enormously stupid or else science is fully compatible with religious belief and equally compatible with atheism. He's saying either 50% of scientists are idiots or it is that you can be a Christian and be a scientist. Actually, the two just don't clash. You can be an atheist and a scientist if you like, or you can be a creationist and a scientist if you like. That's just not what science does. It doesn't tell you whether there's a God or not. So if people are trying to sync Scripture and sync God by reference to science, actually even atheist scientists conclude that you can't do that. That's just silly. There are a few exceptions like Richard Dawkins, but not many. I'd also want to remind you, if you said science has sunk scripture, I'd want to remind you that the development of modern science originated out of the Reformation when people understood what the Bible said and started studying the world because it said, they, they said, if we are made in the image of God and if the world is orderly and created by God, then we should be able to study it and learn how, how things operate. And that's the foundation for modern science. I'd want to say to you that both science and scripture agree that at the beginning was a blinding flash of light. And they also agree that human beings like us, people with the capacity to build cities and farm and make music and write literature and communicate with one another in speech and worship a God, creatures like us emerged on the scene in the last 10,000 years. Science believes that, scripture teaches that. The two are completely in harmony. So the beginning and the end of the story, science and scripture teach exactly the same thing. You see, God's word and God's world agree. God created everything. Last week we said we can reach that conclusion by studying God's world. Cosmology, physics, astronomy. This week we've reached it by studying God's word. Theology, poetry, and history. It'd be really easy to miss the point in this debate. God created everything. That's what Genesis 1 is telling us. He spoke light into being by the power of his word alone. And through the gospel, he still does. He is still in the business of bringing blinding light into dark places. And that's what happened at the very beginning. He made the sky. He just went, let there be sky. And there it was. And he filled it with 18,000 different species of birds. He made the oceans, okay, here, here we go, land over here, oceans here, 380 million cubic miles of, of water, there you go, just made it. And he filled them with so many types of creatures that even now we're, we're still dis- discovering what's down there. I've said it before that one of my favorite episodes of the series, Planet Earth, is the one called Ocean Deep, where they're just basically traveling down in a, in a submarine going, yep, yeah, we have no idea what that is, yep. Well, that's a, that's a new one. No idea. Yep, that's the first time everyone, anyone's ever seen that because the oceans are so vast and so filled with oddball creatures that nobody even knows what they are. But God just loves creating things. God loves making things and demonstrating his, his glory. This odd creature that you don't even know what it is, I've been enjoying that for years. Thousands, millions maybe. I don't know, even billions. It doesn't matter. I like creating things. He then made the land, just said, right, land, let it appear. And there it was. 
and he carpet-bombed it with a stunning array of vegetation, a lot of which are plants so small that you don't even know that they're there. You walk through the forest and you're just treading on hundreds of them every minute, and some of them are so massive like the giant redwoods and sequoias. Every acre of the Amazon contains 600 different species of plant, and God just made them, just went, here we go, let, them, let the earth bring forth, and it was so. Again, it doesn't matter to me if you believe that that happened over a long, long period or whether it happened instantaneously. I don't personally think that's a huge issue. The fact is God spoke them into being and they were. God created every form of animal life. He made the kangaroo. Why the kangaroo? I I don't know. You think, "What what a funny creature. God spoke and the kangaroo was. He created the lion. And, and you look at the lion and you think, this is such a majestic, amazing animal. It's so impressive. God there, God's there saying, look at it. Look how aggressive it is. Look how powerful it is. Look what I've made. And he's like, you know what? I think I'm going to make a small version as well. I'm going to make like a mini version. And then you've got this tiny little house cat. And you're thinking, what's that for? And God says, I just like creating things. I wasn't in a hurry. Look, look at all of this stuff. God loves making things. He he makes sunsets. He made sunsets, interestingly, not just on earth, but presumably every star in the universe creates a sunset somewhere. He made sunsets and sea lions and snowstorms. He made berries, which I love, and butterflies, and blue. Blue was God's idea. And B minor, God just made these things. And yet the climax of all of those things was a creature that stood upright and made the whole thing very good. It was bipedal, had two legs, large cranium, opposable thumbs, and the capacity for worship and writing and music and farming and abstract thought and creativity and government. And God looked and he said, that's it. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit looked at one another and said, that's it. Very, very good. That is made totally unlike any other creature. Look at it. Their brains were only two pints in size, yet they could store almost infinite amounts of information, far more than the world's most powerful computers. Their hearts pump blood at 100 Uh, 186 million miles in the course of their lives. Their network of blood vessels, if stretched out, would be 60,000 miles long, which would circle the earth more than two times. And God says, that's very good. That's really good, that one. And they're sent out, male and female, to govern the earth, subdue it, care for it, and fill it with the image and glory of the God who created them through Jesus by the Spirit. God created everything. Let's praise him for it. Let's pray. Lord our God, we do thank you for explaining to us where we came from and for showing us who we are. We thank you for making us. We thank you for making this amazing, beautiful world for us to live in, to enjoy, to study, to rule. We thank you that we're not insignificant specks in your sight. We thank you that we're not just machines for the reproduction of our DNA. We thank you that 
we find our meaning in relationship, relation to you and, and your love for us. Oh, Lord, help us to return your love for us with our own love and, and, and our obedience in every part of our lives. Help us, Lord, when, when we look at creation, whether through a, a microscope or a telescope or just walking down the street or through some field, to give glory to you as the one who made it all and takes great joy in it. Help us, Lord, to worship you as our eternal, sovereign, creator God who deserves all praise and adoration. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.